One of the most important steps in every marketing campaign is trying to figure out who is the ideal customer who you should market to. What if I told you you could make a list and make sure that most of the customers in your list are customers that will actually buy from you? And that's what we are talking today in this episode. This episode is titled Targeting Customers Who Actually Buy From You. I am Christian, your host. I have been doing software development and data science for the past seven years. My recent gigs were mostly with creative agencies and fintech companies. And before we start, I want to welcome every single one of you that is listening to us today. If it is your first time, again, welcome. Thanks for listening. What we do on this show, we talk about different ways you can eliminate manual and repetitive tasks in your business by replacing it with automated process uh, or sometimes softwares or other times tactics just so that you don't have to keep on doing the same things day after day. So um, the end goal is to help you save on operational cost and ultimately help you reach your goal a little faster. And on the show today, we have Hans Bunes and Susanna Ferenczi. Uh, they are both founders of Bunes and Ferenczi. Their business is highly focused on in helping B2B businesses figuring out whom can they help solve a real business problem, who to market and sell to, what to market and sell to uh, the identified cost, those identified customers, when to market and sell to those identified customers. Susanna is in addition to working as a B2B tech growth strategist with Hans, the CMO at Treadler. She's a former marketing director at HPE for the Nordic, Benelux, and Switzerland and Austria region. She's also a holder of the Global Women Excellence Award at HPE 2017 edition. Simply put, she is your marketing guru. About Hans, he is a B2B tech growth specialist. In the past seven years, he's been working in the account-based marketing arena with Fortune 500 companies. His focus was activating sales and marketing against clients' accounts list. He is data and analytics driven. In a nutshell, he is the numbers guy. And I've had the chance to talk to them. These are amazing people and highly professional. So let's hit the music. Welcome to the Business Automation Podcast, where it's all about putting the boring tasks on autopilot so you can focus on what matters the most. And now your host, Christian Ahijo. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Hans. Welcome on the show. Nice to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So um, every time I uh, introduce my guests, I like to um, have them tell us a little bit of their story. Um, So I don't know if you uh, can tell us, how did you both meet? Yeah, maybe I can can start with that. So I was working for HPE uh, for the last 20 years. Um, I left the company a year ago. Mm-hmm. And my last assignment, uh, in my last assignment when I was the marketing director for Northern Europe, Benelux, um, and Austria, Switzerland, uh, Hans, uh, at the beginning, was uh, my trusted advisor. So we really uh, tried to figure out how best to target uh, and sell to customers, how field marketing can enable sales. And uh, Hans helped me in that capacity. In the last two years or three years of my uh, my last assignment with HPE, 
uh, we tuned it up a little bit and uh, we had a joint project uh, and which led us to many, many discoveries. And maybe um, I'll just let Hans explain a little bit from his point of view what these discoveries were. Sure. Yeah, so yeah, so th- thank you. So, so in addition to the work with, with Susanna, um, I mean, what we try to do is it was a it was an interesting exercise because we were lifting one rock and one stone, and we were discovering new new issues underneath. And where we started off with this thing was was in one area where we thought, well, you had this problem, uh, you're not growing fast enough, or you're not. Um, or, or you're not um, uh, you're not seeing those results that you, that you that you wanted, and we came to the conclusion actually that the, the real problem was different than what we saw in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And 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 what we'd really discovered with the problem was that we needed to go back to to almost the basics mm-hmm. and to redefine who actually, in this case, HPE should be targeting in the Nordic and Nordic region and, and Benelux. Um, it probably was. It was time to sort of refresh that targetable, addressable market because um, it had been static for for a long time, and we found out a lot of things in that exercise. Mm-hmm. And and essentially, what we decided to do as as Susanna's tenure ended, and I, I uh, it was time for me to do something different as well, was how do we repackage all of this into where we can help other organizations with the same problems that we tried to solve at HP. Mm-hmm. I really like your story. It looks like uh, uh, you two had really a prior um, history in working together, which actually is kind of really amazing when you start something new because you already uh, have this, uh, I, I don't know if the word is synergy, you know, working together and accomplishing great things. And you mentioned something uh the basic, going back to the basics, and I know in every in every craft that you do, basics are really really important. Can you tell us a little bit more about those basics? Maybe I can start, and then I let Hans uh, to to continue. But in my point of view, from my point of view, I think companies can really thrive when they drive value centric approaches mm-hmm. so they're really conscious of the value that they deliver to the market because mm-hmm. then selling or marketing becomes much more natural mm-hmm. so every country or every company i'm sorry so every company that um that is successful on the market really has to start by understanding what are the problems that i'm solving why am i in a unique position to solve these problems. In other words, what are my unique uh, differentiation is and who truly cares about the problem? Mm -hmm. Because when you understand this match of who I am and what problems I'm solving and what my core capabilities are on one hand, and I understand clearly who the customer is who cares about that problem, this is when value gets created. And this is when you, you can just, you can find the right kind of techniques and elements to bridge yourself to the customer so -hmm. to me going back to the basics is starting with what's your value and Mm -hmm. who cares about that value Hmm. yeah and i I think maybe to add on to that i think what's happened over the last 10 15 20 years is and and we spend most of our career in in technology and technology tend to be at at the forefront of of sales technology and marketing technology uh, sales technology and marketing technology but also sales and marketing sort of tactics and, and methodology. And when I was running ABM programs for, for some fairly large customers out there, I tended always to ask my buyers, can you explain to me why this account is important to you? Mm-hmm. 
And the reality was so many times, no one could explain to me why this account was in our ABM program. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is that there is, um, is this use of the list. We've turned these we've turned these potential customers into a list. And I, we used the term, sometimes I didn't know if it was a hit list, a shit list, or a wish list. <laughs> and whether or not you created value for that account on that list was seemed sometimes to be quite arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the problem with this as well is that if you focus only on lists, then the rest of your allocation of resources, your OPEX and all these other things become, you know, meaningless in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my aha moments uh, that led me to the sort of foundation of our work was I was talking to a very, very senior, I mean, probably one of the most senior contacts I have anywhere in a Fortune 100 company. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they wanted to go after a specific segment in the big market, and they were going to hire the hundreds of new salespeople. Mm-hmm. Now, the advantage of hiring new salespeople to do this is you get you know results quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Am I getting traction on this or am I not getting traction on that? Mm-hmm. The downside is, is I kept on thinking there must be a smarter way, a much smarter way for, for anyone to want to grow than only – hiring more salespeople every time you want to go and get new customers. Can we use data? Can we use insights? Can we use analytics to really understand the questions that you talked about earlier? Who is our customer? What's our value creation? What do we sell and market to them? And when do we do it? Because if we can solve these questions, we may not need those extra hundreds of resources. We may actually need much fewer resources because we use data insights and analytics to help us ascertain who that right customer is, what do we sell to him and when do we sell to him? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, uh, it's really interesting what you're mentioning. I'm not a uh, marketing expert as uh, you you guys, but I do know that sometimes, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes uh, when people are trying to figure out who uh, are the customer or the ideal customer, or let me say the right word is uh, uh, ideal customer profile, right? They can make lists, as we mentioned, and sometimes uh, is is it where they do a focus group, right? Trying to figure out who should buy from them. So there are there are two no there are two segments to this. Mm-hmm. I think there is one segment which is uniquely about product development. So mm-hmm. then when you when you come up with the product and then you're trying to figure out, I mean, as I'm developing this product, I mean, how do I what are the, what is the what are the requirements mm-hmm. of the clients? Mm-hmm. So you do a lot of focus groups and then you you genuinely I think most companies, at least in tech, trying to figure out truly what the customer feedback is when they're developing the product. Mm-hmm. The challenge starts when it comes to go to market when it comes to the field when it when it gets allocated to country xyz to okay now france germany netherlands mm-hmm. here is the product that we 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 came out with and now it's your time to to sell it mm-hmm. and this is when the natural moment for sales is like okay who is who do i have on my customer list mm-hmm. who is who, who who do i have as an account assigned to me mm-hmm. and then literally selling that product account by account on that list rather than 
taking a moment and say, mm-hmm. okay, here is Germany. Here is who the customers are in Germany. Mm-hmm. Here is what they truly care about. Here is how the unique in the given context of Germany. Mm-hmm. Here is what a unique proposition is in Germany mm-hmm. or within Europe. I mean, it could be a, a larger region. Mm-hmm. And, and for that reason, this should be our narrative or these should be the customers that truly care or these should be the ones that we should prioritize mm-hmm. on our account list. So I think th- there is absolutely relevancy for focus groups, et cetera, and then it happens really well in the, the stage of product development. But then the second part of it is when you bring it to context in the context of the field where you're going to sell it, Mm-hmm. then you really need to rethink mm-hmm. and create your serviceable adjustable market mm-hmm. based on truly who cares about the value proposition that you have to offer. It's, it's, almost, it's almost to a notion to, to where uh, many think you can sell anything to anybody. So mm-hmm. I have a portfolio. So you can almost think, think about it as a matrix. Mm-hmm. I have 500 accounts to my sales reps and I have seven offers mm-hmm. and I'm going to sell that. That's my, that's my market. Right. But the reality is that your value creation and the needs of those customers are not matched in that matrix. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's like when we say ideal customer profile, because I think that's very important to think about this. Well, it actually also itself has two, uh, two elements. One is the, is the qualitative element, mm-hmm. the qualitative element of actually articulating the problems that they have and the value creation that you have in solving those, that's sort of the qualitative element, and that should lead to your narrative. And then you have the quantitative elements. Of it. And I give an example of that. Um, um, we were talking to a client that says that that client today needs, have no, so this, it's a software solution, right? A SaaS solution. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> currently, there are no self-provisioning tools in the, um, in the offer which means that um, there's a lot of hand-holding on the back end in order to deploy the customer. And in this case, the quantitative element of this customer becomes we cannot sell to organizations below 1,000 employees Mm -hmm. because it makes no sense for us. We can't make any money on that. Mm -hmm. And so your ideal customer profile now is matching the qualitative element of Mm -hmm. the problem statement and and the value creation on on qualitatively and quantitatively only over 100,000 only over a thousand seats mm-hmm. and employees, but maybe if there's self-service provisioning available, maybe the ICP now changes. You mm-hmm. can do the same value creation but for hundred exactly employees in yeah. the organization, right? Yeah. So, so you so you have to look at this, and this is why, and this is one of the things we talk to our clients about is that the ideal customer profile is not a static exercise. Mm-hmm. It is a dynamic exercise as you go along, mm-hmm. as your value creation improves or changes and mm-hmm. the problems changes for the customers mm-hmm. you need to update this hmm. and you need to have a cadence for it and you need to have a governance for it mm-hmm. so i'm sure um when you mention this uh, i keep thinking about the traditional methods the method already established and as you mentioned um, you are using a different process especially you are basing your process on data can you tell us a little bit how is it different to traditional methods so that people can understand, um, you know, like the value proposition you guys are offering? So traditionally, well, depending on the size of the organization, you go from an enterprise down to mid-market, right? So they'll go mm-hmm. to someone, they go to a data vendor, mm-hmm. uh, done a Bradstreet, Biznode, um, <clears throat> Zoom Info, mm-hmm. you know, Wino, depending on where you're in the world, right? And they tell you, I want a thousand, I want a thousand customers, counts, 
typically slice and dice by what we call firmographics. Right? Mm-hmm. Firmographics is revenue size, employee count, and all these type of things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, balance sheet and so forth. And they said, that's our segment. And mm-hmm. so now we're going to allocate all of our resources in terms of sales and marketing and go after those particular segments. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you almost create a quantitative ICP in this particular case. Now, what we say is that what you want to do is you want to start with the qualitative. And the qualitative really starts with that problem statement and the, and, and the value creation. You have your unique identifiers. Mm-hmm. And, in, and who cares? And who cares is really about what does the buying group inside of the organization look like? Mm-hmm. And then what you're going to find is that if your, if your application of value, I'm going to give you two examples. You take a CRM system, a very standard CRM system like Salesforce, right? Mm-hmm. Salesforce is the, the application of Salesforce value is pretty um, – it's pretty universal, right? You could mm-hmm. use Salesforce, whether you're a B2B or a B2C company, mm-hmm. and you can probably sell it and find your sizing of your market mostly on the basis of the, the number of users that it's going to be in there because you know that roughly, and you know, you're know you probably going to know that roughly by, by vertical, right, mm-hmm. of, of what industry it is. But if you're selling a CRM system that is specific for People in large industrial organizations focus on selling very complex solutions. Mm -hmm. You're in a very niche market, right? Mm -hmm. And you may have to to build out what my addressable market looks in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And, and, And you may actually have to use a much more scientific approach to doing that. So what Susanna and I worked on in HPE was very interesting is that we... We looked at two markets, Sweden and the Netherlands. And, and HP is, a, is I, I'd say, is a moderately a complex business, right? Because mm-hmm. they have multiple offers and, uh, and they're selling that data center uh, infrastructure to, to uh, mid-sized to larger organizations who, who have their own data center. Mm-hmm. But what we realized was that we needed to combine sort of the, the tr- traditional approach, which is to structure data, the, um, um, the firmographic data, the transactional data, but also with online data. Mm-hmm. And online data in this particular case is keywords, right? So who could be an interesting client for HPE? Well, someone who is in big data, uh, IoT, uh, you know, Internet of Things, uh, uh, in you know industry 4.0 a number of these keywords right mm-hmm. so what we essentially did is and this is the model i would use for anything that's moderately uh, moderately uh, complex in terms of a value creation to, to to the marketplace so when i, I was working for bisnode at the time and bisnode has a machine learning model that allows you to say that your input is Good customers, mm-hmm. in this case, your training set, right? You, mm-hmm. you work in machine learning. So we, mm-hmm. had, uh, we had essentially five years of good customers. Mm-hmm. And we had hundreds of keywords. And we let the machine learning run three iterations to mm-hmm. where we came out. And we could say, in Sweden, there are, you know, let's take a number. Uh, there is, you know, this amount of 
there's a there was a fixed number of 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 uh, legal entities mm-hmm. over a certain size let's say 10 million dollars right mm-hmm. there's a fixed number of those entities and we ranked those entities now from 1 to whatever it was 10,000 or whatever it was right mm-hmm. how close they were to the ideal customer profile for HP. Mm-hmm. now you know where you should be allocating your resources and your your sales and marketing resources. Oh. And also, as you know, right, when you mm-hmm. run a machine learning model like this, you're going to get to a, to a cutoff point to where the statistical significance of or the likelihood that this is a good customer mm-hmm. is so, it's, it's so noisy that it's unlikely, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's what we got to. We got to a point where it's like below this threshold, mm-hmm. don't even spend any yeah. time because it's unlikely they're going to be a good customer for you. Mm-hmm. So instead of pursuing all of these customers, mm-hmm. you can now pursue only the ones that your in this case machine learning model has told you to make sense for you to pursue. Now there is one twist though, uh, Christian, and maybe I'm going to challenge you a little bit with that twist. Mm-hmm. So when you load only historic quantitative data mm-hmm. into the machine learning, what do you think happens? Well, you will only recognize it's only things. historic data. Yeah, exactly. You only see things that you have seen in the past and you will not discover new stuff. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you can find twins mm-hmm. for those that matching your past, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily your future. Exactly. So this is why we're saying that the qualitative analysis is almost as important mm-hmm. as the quantitative analysis because it's only through qualitative mm-hmm. that you can start translating your future exactly. into data. It makes so much sense. So that means instead of, uh, so basically you start looking for attributes instead of just looking at the past, you look at what kind of attributes a good customer should should have? Exactly. Yeah, and and and, and the attributes in this case, just a, you. The, the easiest way to do that is to is probably to translate the attributes into into online unstructured data. We could give mm-hmm. a perfect example, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say someone is selling a software that only that needs the DevOps people to do. Mm-hmm. Then. What you want to look for is triggering events or organizations that are currently hiring. You can't sell it if they don't have DevOps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you start looking for anyone who has DevOps, right? And you miss, and you miss them, there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if they're on DevOps, you can't sell to them. Exactly. As simple as that, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or you start looking for, you start scraping online data. Uh, across these hundreds and hundreds of keywords that mm-hmm. you, so you, you essentially translate that quantitative into something numeric that you can mm-hmm. use and to build out your model. Mm-hmm. Because the is absolutely right. Our model that we did was based upon historical data and we did a good job of creating a, 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 a sort of a lookalike model mm-hmm. and a, a ranking of a lookalike model based upon historical transactional data. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't tell us necessarily if that is the right yeah, forward. exactly. Yeah. It doesn't tell you about especially the future. In a very just... dynam- yeah, especially in a very dynamic market. Wow, that's so true. And that's one, uh, that this is one uh, challenge I see. I mean, I'm not, I haven't worked much in that area, but I can clearly see that if the market is evolving constantly, it can be quite challenging to keep up with the new things. I remember one um, episode we had uh, in, in one fintech company I was working where uh, we needed to categorize bank statement transactions. Now, banks are doing all kinds of things except the same things. So meaning that one bank will put keywords 
the way they feel like they should put keywords and the other bank will do something totally opposite. And you will keep on seeing every single, let me say every single two weeks or every single month, new keywords popping out. So the engine will sometimes miss certain words because uh, at first we're using, uh, what do you call, uh, how do you call that, regex. So every time you'll have new keywords, that's what we were forced to start using uh, deep learning so that we can, we can start work on looking into the future instead of looking into the past. Exactly. And then uh, staying with fintechs or financial services, again, think about it. If you, if we were to apply this model on financial services and we would say that a good customer mm -hmm. has certain number of assets and mm -hmm. the good customer has certain number of offices and mm -hmm. then certain number of fixed assets or sort of variables. But going into the future, I mean, tell me which startup mm -hmm. with pure software startups, I mean, think about Uber, think about Airbnb. I mean, mm -hmm. do they have assets? <laughs> and so if you're only looking at the past, yeah. you will never find these, these growing these customers, customers wow. as a potential customer for financial services because the the historic data will not show you the future future potential. So I think qualitative analysis is an extremely important yes. differentiation for us yeah. because this is where we can really uniquely match the past with the potential future. You definitely do have, with that approach, you definitely do have the ability to look into the future. Now, I, th there's this question that comes in my mind where whenever you use a, th this approach, I'm thinking it might have happened whereas the customer came with a list of clients but then the engine has a uh, hands mentioned earlier on there's you have this threshold so you have these customers that you shouldn't go after um you know when that list of accounts gets slashed by half or maybe more or maybe less um do you see a lot of resistance uh, when that happens yes Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, clearly, and 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 this is, I think is a particular issue. And when you look at the U.S., and and, and I think it's and it's driven by, I think it's driven by a number of different things. So I think one is that depending on the size of the organization, right? I mean, we come mostly from 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 like older tech companies where the first thing that happens if you don't allocate out these the same amount of accounts to sales reps is that you start having to start to make reductions in your in your in your assignments right in terms of you you may have to to start letting people go right mm -hmm. so there's a there's that the other thing is this natural i think historical face sense that uh, everyone should could be your customer kind of a thing mm -hmm. right in in mm -hmm. there and then there's quite frankly this fear of missing out fomo my my favorite thing, right? What if we missed someone? What mm -hmm. if the model wasn't? And, and you know that these models are not going to be 100% correct. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is, is 90 to 95% good enough? And I would say, argued, yes, it is from, mm -hmm. a, from a pure allocation perspective. And so I think, I think the, the, the resistance is structural in that sense. Then... If you get down to an individual level, and, and I've been a sales guy, and I not for many years, but I've been a sales guy, and there's nothing that salespeople hate more than if some system comes in and tell them that this this account that's on their list is no longer shouldn't be on their list because the system told them that it's no longer because they're going to say my gut feeling exactly. tells me exactly. this account should be on this list. Even though I haven't transacted with them for five years, mm -hmm. I, I'm now best 
best buddy with this guy over here, instead of actually getting that embracing element from a sales guy to say, actually, you just handed me something that is going to allow me to focus. Hmm. Because for us, the key word is focus. Mm -hmm. Remove this. You know, we've we've run a a similar type of a similar type of an exercise, right? Where what the salespeople had on their list in a similar type of a model, the one that we described earlier, mm-hmm. 30% of the accounts that the salespeople had on their list sat below the threshold where the model said that they would ever transact, which essentially means the three out of seven, the three out of 10 phone calls that's being made is to someone who's never going to buy. I can imagine. And the we still call them every quarter and we still call them every quarter. Hmm. And we still call them, and, you know, and so, so it's like, instead of embracing and saying, oh, you're helping me get, getting rid of all the noise mm-hmm. and you give them the essence and the focus, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, no, 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 no. It, because out. everyone is so focused on quantity that they forget about quality. Mm-hmm. Susanna, did I miss any important stuff? No, I think you covered it all. And I think what what's happening is, I mean, just one, maybe one element in my current uh, other assignment um, is is i think this uh, this bias okay mm-hmm. so let's suppose that you you get through to a client mm-hmm. and he, who is not your ideal client but you get through to them mm-hmm. and then you get some sort of positive reinforcement that this maybe is your client mm-hmm. i think in a smaller organization in a startup you always have to experiment so i would mm-hmm. never ever say to any sales guy that that no, don't go after your nudge, you don't go after your gut feel. I think to some extent, mm-hmm. they have to go after their gut feel because they may discover something that we would have never thought about, right? Mm-hmm. I think that has to be part of the model. Mm-hmm. But when you get these positive bias uh, feedback, then if you stick too too much with that client who is never going to transact with you because that's clearly not a client on your ideal customer profile list, you waste a lot of energy and and you get a lot of disappointment. So Mm -hmm. if sales guys could just look at it from a point of view of I'll have a higher return of success and a lower return of rejection, Mm -hmm. because that's what they face every day. I mean, there is a number of rejections that they need to face, but then in this case, the rejection would be not because we don't bring value. Mm -hmm. The rejection is about not now. Hmm. So then I think it becomes clearer for the salesperson that, okay, it's not about that I'm not bringing value to this client. Mm-hmm. Is that at this particular moment, it's not yeah, the right they're not moment. ready yet. Okay? So yeah. And that's when marketing comes in. This is where the role of marketing comes in to, to accompany these clients when the timing is going to be right mm-hmm. for, for the salesperson to start engaging again. Sorry, and I know you like numbers. Uh, so let me give you one other thing. I was talking to mm-hmm. someone I know who is extremely, um, has a good long career in sales um, enablement. Sales enablement really is about optimizing mm-hmm. processes and stuff. And he gave me an example of something he'd worked on where um, it was so bad because they were selling to so many non-ideal customer profiles. Mm-hmm. And they started to measure the velocity, right? And velocity mm-hmm. is how many days essentially does it take from the beginning of the sales process to the end until we close. Mm-hmm. And we typically tend to call this for stalled opportunities. They just linger in your Salesforce mm-hmm. system or your in your uh, in your CRM system. Mm-hmm. And he actually measured 
I measured this. And in, in this case, it was like they finally transacted, but it took like 520 days. Wow. And when they were transacting with the more ideal customers, it was taking like 200 days. Mm-hmm. 200 days is still no, 180 days, so still six months. And keep in mind, most of the type of customers we work with, a you know, an average sales cycle is, you know, six to nine months. Mm-hmm. But Think about this from a cash flow perspective and think mm-hmm. about this from a gross, especially if you're an earlier stage company. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can truncate the time to cash mm-hmm. by 50% That's by massive. selling to the right customer from the first place, what does that do to your to your growth? It's tremendously. Mm-hmm. So so we believe very strongly if you really look at the, the metrics that matter, you know, which is velocity, uh, conversion rate, mm-hmm. all of these bits and time to cash and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Those are the. That's where you get the biggest impact of actually doing this, mm-hmm. because you sell to the right customers at the right time, with the right, solving the right problem, and that means very likely they're more likely to buy from you quicker. That's actually good because if you if you're running a company, like especially a startup, cash flow is so crucial because you need you need the money to be there at the right time because uh, just a miscalculation can either make or break your business. And you, you mentioned you mentioned metrics. <laughs> I'm putting myself on the shoes of maybe the salespeople and trying to see. Um, see, you bring in you are bringing in such an amazing systems. If I was a buyer of such a system, how do I? What kind of metrics can I use to see that? Wow, actually, the method of Hans and Susanna is way more better than what I used to do before. So, so I think if you look at so now if we look at our our own ideal customer profile, we look at essentially three scenarios. But for, for this our this conversation, let's talk about two of them. One is it's an earlier stage company, let's say typically a SaaS company, right? They have mm-hmm. a product market fit. They they have maybe their first fifty to hundred customers in there, and now it's like, how do I get my next one thousand? And typically you measure in there is you you look at um you look at a couple of things is, is um, cost of acquisition, mm-hmm. right? You look at the lifetime value mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, because SaaS businesses are really built upon mm-hmm. bringing in the right customers and, and retaining them, right? And getting, mm-hmm. uh, getting that. Sure. And you then look at the lifetime value versus the cost of acquisition as a ratio. And, and you look at velocity. Velocity is extremely important, right? In mm-hmm. terms of how quickly can I get cash in the bank? Mm-hmm. So, we strongly believe if you sell to the right customers, so if you're in a SaaS company, this is what you should be measuring mm-hmm. when working with us is that the difference essentially of am I, is my velocity quicker? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, um, you know, over time, do I get a, a longer lifetime value because I actually solved someone's problem. They really wanted to stay with me longer, right? Mm-hmm. Could I, was my customer acquisition cost lower because I actually didn't spend so much time on so many other mm-hmm. customers that didn't really belong to my ideal customer profile. Mm-hmm. So actually the number of outbounds I do, because my conversion rate is much higher now, mm-hmm. right? So these are the type of things that we, we would strongly, um, you know, have an earlier stage or, or, you know, maybe someone with the series A look at. And, and the same, I would, I mean, similar things we would look at someone who goes, in our use case too, let's say that SaaS company in the U.S. wants to. So um, the conversation I was having now with with one of our clients is that they have a pretty decent track, well, they a great track record in the U.S., mm-hmm. but a bit uncertain how they're going to deploy in Europe, mm-hmm. right? So now we do 
a sort of accelerated product market fit exercise for Europe, an accelerated ICP profile in, a, in an agile way to where we want, we want to get them to in the six months is to say, actually, this is your plan. Mm-hmm. For Europe, this is your plan. So instead of doing all the trial and error of hiring a bunch of salespeople, mm-hmm. chasing out buying lists <laughs> again, um, we do an, an, an agile development of, of that. And then we probably measure the same thing. It's like, you know, how quickly do we get pipeline? How many of our ideal customers we get in? Um, what's the sales cycle? And how quick do we get the cash essentially versus the investments that they make? So those are the type of measurements I think from my from a business perspective that we would like to see our clients actually, mm-hmm. you know, th- that's what we think we ultimately impact. I don't know if Susan, I want to add something. Yeah. So the, from a marketing point of view, mm-hmm. so, I mean, you and I discussed this, right? We talked mm-hmm. about this, that um, marketing has a lot of, I mean, great impact on the business, mm-hmm. but I think there is one part of marketing that has to be focused on sales. Mm-hmm. Or, or or enabling sales or contributing to the business. Not everything of marketing should be measured the same way, but there is one part where I invest into programs mm-hmm. to drive demand, which should be measured, in my opinion, exactly the same way as sales is measured. Wow, thank you. Uh, that's an amazing advice uh, because metrics, especially in the marketing uh, point is quite different in my understanding because to me it feels like it's less uh, mathematical. It, it's more of a science. Uh, so if you can understand how you can measure things up, it definitely makes the, the, the difference. We are reaching, we have reached the end of the episode. I don't know if um, it will be possible for Hans and Susanna to come back on the show. Maybe that time we will talk about uh, return on investment for um, data-driven solutions for sales and marketing solutions. That way, uh, people uh, listening to us can understand what should they expect for every, for every, every time they will, uh, they will invest in such a solution. The, why? Because I do know that some uh, data-driven systems do have a high entry uh, high entry prices, but they do deliver value. But how do you know this is actually the right move to make at this stage? So, um, thanks for having, thanks for coming on the show, Hans and Susanna. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Christian. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. So for those listening to us, thank you for being there with us today. If you liked the show, if it was help you, helpful to you, please subscribe and uh, give us a five stars reviews. That's how we grow. Uh, if you think this can help somebody else, please share the episode. This was Christian, your host, signing out. <laughs>